Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello there everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there Matt, how are you? Actually really excited, really busy. It's been a pretty exciting week actually. It's been magic hasn't it? Like how good, I'm going to go straight into it today, like how good has been the uh, the response to the 3D printed facility block over there in West Dubbo? So much better than I could have possibly imagined. One of the things that's been fascinating about this whole process, mm. as we talked about before, we said there's all this controversy around knocking down a toilet block. Mm. And this is when, of course, we knocked it down, getting ready to 3D print the new toilet block. Yes. And I'm convinced that there are people who just don't like change. Mm. For whatever reason, people are different. Absolutely. Some people like red cars, some people like blue cars, that's some people right. don't like change. But the response since we've started the printing process, and keep in mind it's only been this week. Yes. So yes. most people listen to this, say, from Sunday going forward. If we go back a week, yes. about the 9th of July, 8th, 9th of July, was when the company turned up to set up their gantry. Mm. So all that was sitting there was a slab. Wow. They turned up, set up the gantry. Come Monday morning, yep. which would have been the 10th of July, yes. they said print. A few days later, they said stop. Wow. And, and doesn't it look amazing? It does it look really cool. It really does look fantastic. Yeah. Like I, I must admit, I got across the other day, had a bit of a look around, with about a thousand other people, let me tell you. There was a massive crowd there watching this. It looked fantastic. I love the way the whole thing operated. Like it, was, it seemed something out of, I don't know, some sort of futuristic, sort of techie-type world. It was a bit like that. And funnily enough, I did joke with Nick Holden, who's the CEO, the founder of Contour 3D, the company that mm. won the tender. I said, we've missed something here. All these spectators going past, I reckon if we just charge 10 bucks a head, we'd cover <laughs> we the cost of this. this. <laughs> and it was fascinating. I was actually yes. over there one afternoon, and it was probably the fourth day that the printing was just about finished. And I just saw a couple there, and sometimes some people mm. ask a few questions of myself. And they started asking a few questions. They said, you know, we've been coming throughout the day, every day, just mm. to see how it's going, just to see the update. Yes. And we've been fascinated. So they were a daily visitor, a multi-day right? yeah, daily right. visitor. It was quite mesmerising. It, it really was. Is. Just sort of sitting there. It was very relaxing, to be honest, watching it just sort of zoom around and do this little thing. I actually love the front part there where you got this sort of ziggy, sort of patterny type thing happening. Like, that's That was so clever. It was clever. And that's the flexibility that you have, I suppose, with something yeah. like this. But I, I actually heard the words hypnotic. I did hear the yes, words yes. mesmerising. Yes. People were just feeling like you could just sit there and watch it all day. and. Mm. What Nick talked about, Nick Holden talked about a lot, was that he kept saying the hare and the tortoise, mm. a normal builder might get in and do things pretty quickly, lay some bricks pretty quickly, and then they stop for a morning tea break or yep. they stop because they've got to go and get some more bricks brought in. Yep. He said, this thing is just like the tortoise. It just keeps plugging away, yep. layer after layer, keeps going. It doesn't going. stop though. It was taking, depending what time of the day, because of the temperature, yes. it was taking anywhere from six minutes to 11 minutes to do one complete so, loop. So it was the weather holding it up, the colder weather was going to get slower? Was that the thing? Or Exactly right. The concrete, and it's not concrete, it's Contourcrete, Ooh, because always, always the different companies that do 3D printing that I've looked at around the world yeah. always talk about the fact that their mixture is the secret. That's the right. thing that's their IP. It's like the KFC, secret herbs and spices that's sort of exactly thing. Exactly right. right. So the secret herbs and spices in the mixture used on this one, mm. we'll never know. Mm. But again, Nick calls it Contourcrete. I yeah, like the fact yeah. that he's come up with a name, a name. involving his company there. And that temperature, well, well, the temperature that that was being used at during the day was fine, but mm. he found that as it got a bit colder, 
early evening, for example, because mm. theoretically you could just set up and keep printing 24 yeah, hours a day. Yeah. But he found that when it got to five o'clock or so, a bit later in the just evening, too cold. yeah, and it just didn't seem to have quite the right consistency as it came out. Now, yeah. that's something that he could work on if he wanted to be able to print yeah. 24 hours a day, but he was always set up, he always said in the beginning to take three, maybe four days, it probably yeah. ended up taking about five days to do it in the end. But hey, what about the national response from the media? Like, hasn't that been great too? Like, I, I wasn't expecting that. I was thinking, obviously, from a local perspective, you'd have a lot of people come across and see it. But there seems to have been great interest from ABC News and uh, Channel 10. There's been others, I'm sure, as well. So talk me through it. What's, what's been happening there? And isn't it great to see Dubbo in the national media for a positive? Absolutely. And that's always yeah. my objective. The way it should be. Exactly right. And I'll tell a little secret here that mm. only you and I and our thousands of listeners to the podcast yes, will yes, know yes, about. Absolutely. What I'm always trying to do is to present a positive message for mm. Dubbo. Mm. And that's not about telling lies. That's no, always no. about focusing on the positive. Yep. And here's a great example of this. We didn't actually go out chasing the national media. We put out a media release, yeah. as you expect us to do. Yeah. I posted a few things on social media. But the national media thought this is an interesting enough story. Mm. And it's something that captures the national imagination. But the other thing, I had a few of the journos and producers talk to me off air before we did some of the interviews. And they went, oh, gee, this is pretty impressive for little old Dubbo, isn't it? And just the tone, mm. you kind of feel like we're the big metro area mm. and all you people out there in regional Australia, well, you know, we know that you're not quite with it. You know you're not quite as smart as it's us, as good, good looking as us. town, so to speak. The, that's the, the, the kind cynicism, of, yes, it drips. That's kind it? of yes. what it, it felt like. And I often joke with people that all the intelligent people in Australia are living in regional areas because mm. we're smart enough to know that the cost of living's better, yep. the commute to work's better, the air quality's better, all these things yep. are better in a regional Absolutely. area, yeah. and the poor people in the now metro our areas. Now are going to be better too. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. But they did, so doing the interviews, it was kind of like, wow, this is mm. Dubbo. This is the first council in the nation mm. that has built council infrastructure it's in amazing, this way. Yes, now, yes. obviously, our big picture plan, and the reason that Matt Wright, who brought this notice of motion to council initially mm. last year, mm was all about solving a housing problem. And I did talk to the national media about this. I said, look, we've got a major problem in Dubbo. And of course, journos ears prick when they hear major problem. Mm -hmm. The major okay. problem we've got is that lots of people want to come to Dubbo, but we don't have enough housing for them. And it's not, up their line of questioning. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and it's not just Dubbo that that applies to. Yeah. Housing problems, housing mm. crisis, if you want to call it mm. that, is certainly something that we see a lot, across lots of areas. Yeah. But... We need a different solution. We can't just keep trying to do things in the same old way. So that's when Matt Wright, a councillor Matt Wright, brought forward a notice of motion last year to reserve four blocks of a future release of Keswick mm. specifically for 3D printed housing. So we'll have a normal residential development. Yep. We'll have normal houses there, but four. We'll pick four random blocks in amongst that and say the only builder that we're going to approve on those blocks is someone that's going to print with a 3D methodology. Fantastic. That created a huge amount of interest. Yep. We had calls from international companies saying, wow. we've heard you want to do 3D printing. Yep. We can do 3D printing. When can we be there? And hold on, hold on there. <laughs> We're just reserving a future release, four blocks, to yes. get the conversation started, but also to allow the technology to develop. Yep. It turns out that there was probably a bit more enthusiasm for this than we realised. Mm. And then very quickly, we had to get our staff to go and find out the regulatory processes. Mm. What are well, the so approvals? New, isn't it? Like it they is. wouldn't know about it either. Well, That's right. there, there is nothing in our state government planning laws mm. that says, oh, and by the way, when you're doing a 3D printed house, yeah. here's how it Make works. Make sure you follow these guidelines. So yeah. our staff went away and did some more research and came back. And so they satisfied themselves and then satisfied councillors that this would be okay from a regulatory process. Mm. And so that was all great. We're planning for some 
house blocks, but then we had a toilet block, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, the toilet block that was over there in Lions Park West was at the end of its life. Mm. I've had estimations of 50 years, even 60 years yeah, of age. Right. I don't know the exact age, yep. but it was certainly beams were rusted out. There mm. was concrete that was getting cancer in there. It was essentially a high-maintenance toilet block mm. that needed to have a lot of money spent on it just to make sure it was continually safe. So mm. toilet blocks get replaced from time to time. Yeah. It was time to replace it. Obviously, that was the process. We then said, well, if we're going to do 3D-printed housing – why don't we try it on a toilet block? A toilet mm. block simpler for a yep. start. Yep. The second thing is the housing that we want to do 3D printed is not going to be council owned. We're going to have private individuals who are going to get someone to do a 3D printed house. Mm. Maybe some people might be a bit nervous about that. Oh, I don't know if I want to live in a 3D house. Well, I hope someone else does it first. Mm. So we thought, well, council can do some infrastructure yep. and a toilet block yeah. is something that's public owned. Come and have a look at it. You can walk through it. It's, uh, there's no cost in charge. That's right. N- tap your, your knuckles on that's the right. side. See how strong it is and that's feel right. for it yourself. That's yeah, it. Don't try and get a sledgehammer or anything like that. But you can yeah, just right. feel it and, and make sure you're comfortable with it, but also see the printing process. Yes. Yes. And again, we put that out for tenders. We said, we've got a toilet block to replace. Here's the specs of what we need replaced. And by the way, we're only going to accept tenders from someone that does 3D printing. Mm. So we got those in. Mm. We awarded the contract to Contour 3D, $316,000. We've talked about that price before. It. It's costing-wise too. This is the other part about it. It's very cost-effective. Yeah. When we compare to the last two toilet blocks that councillors put up, one in Wellington, one in Church Street, then it's quite cost-effective. Mm. And I think we're getting a lot more for our money than we got in both of those examples mm. there. The estimation from Nick, now again, it's his company. He's focused on mm. 3D printing. So take that information on board with you, he says it's approximately 25% cheaper to build some infrastructure than with Mm. traditional methods. Now, there's still a lot of other things that have to happen. The printing of that, the the walls, et cetera, are all finished, but someone's got to come in and fit the toilet still. Mm. It's not cheaper to do the toilets. It's not cheaper to do... Imagine those costs are still the same. Yeah, that's right. It's really replacing the bricklayers. Now, I had some people say to me, well, this is terrible. We're getting rid of all our trades and we're replacing them with machinery. And that's what's happened throughout history. Oh, that's right. There was a little thing called the Industrial Revolution that yes. kind of went down that path. Yes, the chimney sweeps went and all these sort of things, absolutely. And the Luddites, I, I love the story from a historical perspective of the Luddites, mm. who were people who would come in and they were experts at making textiles, at making cloths. Mm. And some genius came up with the idea of using machinery to do mm. the same thing. So the Luddites were groups of people who came in and actually destroyed the equipment destroyed the processes right. that were put in place to make the production of cloth, of textiles, faster. So that's where we get this term of someone, oh, he's a Luddite. Oh, right. We often think about that Luddite term being effectively someone that doesn't want to embrace technology. But the Luddites went further not wanting to embrace technology. They actually At least destroyed. destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, yes, there right. it was, yes. So throughout history, we've seen people saying, I'm not happy about technology replacing mm. jobs. Mm. But what I noticed when I was watching this process occurring was, There was staff there. There was some staff there who were skilled in trades. Mm. They may not have been bricklayers, but they were still skilled in a trade. So maybe the bricklayers of today become... Become like a a technician for that sort of area. Exactly right. So they can be doing different things on these jobs. So jobs change, but at the same time, the big issue we have with the building trade at the moment is we don't have enough trade people. Now, Nick had some data, which I'll quote, but just put a little asterisk next to this data. I haven't researched this data. I'm taking Nick's word for it. But he said in an average classroom some number of years ago, Mm. don't know how many, Mm. but in the average classroom of 35, which I know is bigger than a classroom, he said there used to be 12 people, 12 of those kids who would go into a trade. That same comparison now is four. So that's where Nick's coming from that 
He's probably about right, to be honest. And yeah. that's and that it sounds right. It, yep. it has that sort of feeling that's right. I just mm. I don't want to quote that no, accurate data without yeah, it's, without it's, having some more information behind that. But yeah. the bottom line is fewer students are going into trades. Yes. We still need houses built. We're not able to build enough houses again. People want to come to Dubbo. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Come here. Just bring your tent because we don't have enough housing yes. here. So this is a potential solution to the problem. I've spoken to the housing minister, Rose Jackson, mm. about our 3D printed toilet. I've spoken to her about our solution for 3D housing and she said, that sounds fantastic. Tell me more. Mm. Rose has got a much bigger problem than I have. Mm, I'm trying to solve the problem for Dubbo. Yep. She's trying to solve the problem for the state. Oh, absolutely. If she can see a well, solution around this. You can see this. the situation here potentially with uh, public housing across the board could be a, a, a generally good starting point, I think, within state government ranks. Because they're obviously looking at cost ways as well or trying to save a few bucks as well. Yeah, and the other feedback I've had has been from architects. Oh, okay. Now, architects typically, and I'm being very harsh here on architects for a moment, typically are great at drawing fantastic pictures, yep. but then sometimes they'll hand those beautiful pictures to the builder and the mm. builder says, how am I meant to build that? And of course, the most famous example is the Opera House. Yes, yes. Beautiful design. And then someone had to come along and make the thing stand yes, up. Yes, that's right. They obviously managed to do that. But mm. sometimes when an architect draws some beautiful pictures for a design of, mm. of some building, they're not probably thinking about the cost of production of that building. Yep. And the classic is when you get to curves. I was going to say that the curvature and all these little other little features which this block currently has, well, you can't normally do that with some bricks. You well, know, there, there has hard, to be another it? way of using some different type of material. Yeah, and so that's the beautiful thing now is architects, once you start to get 3D printing technology, mm. architects can say, well, now I used to have to constrain my imagination, but now my imagination can run wild. And that mm. little bit of webbing you talked about mm. on the front of it, it was quite clever. And I actually took a little bit of a video of that so you can look at my Facebook page mm. or YouTube page and, and watch that little part in particular. So as it went down one section, the head of the printing head or the head of the, the um, machinery just wobbled back and forth as it went down. So it almost looked like it had a bit of a yeah. stutter. Yeah. But then the next layer that went above did the Slightly same stutter. different again though, wasn't it? Yes. Well, it was just out of sync. Yes, so it was yes. almost like it was 90 degrees out of sync. So, so, so was that all computer programmed? Is, it? is that Correct. the thing? Yeah, yeah wow. they just basically say, give me this and then it goes along each layer and does it. And then the effect when you stand back and look at the wall, yeah. it's just almost like a a lattice mm. or, a, or a weaving. It almost yes. looks like someone's had some weaving, some classic basket weaving, yep. and they've woven that concrete inside and out. Of course, they yes. haven't. It's just different layers of concrete, yes. but it looks really effective. So Absolutely. Th there's so much potential there. That particular construction has got a gap. I'd estimate about 25 centimetre gap between the, the outside and inside wall. Is that for insulation or what's that for? I think that's just part of the strength of the process. Okay. So rather than fill all that with concrete, yeah. You have one layer on the outside, one layer on the inside, and then they have little reinforcement bars right. that go between the two yes. walls to tie those walls together, if you like. Yep. I think they're trying to achieve the same thing as if you just had that all solid concrete, mm. but that would use a lot more concrete, which mm. would be more expensive. Mm. If you're doing that in a house, I imagine that air gap is not too bad for insulation, mm. but I also imagine you could fill that mm. with some type of insulator, yeah, which would yeah. make that really effective That's for the, the insulation. sort of thing too, doesn't oh, it? It meets yeah. all those current standards. Now, we're yeah. going to leave it. We're not going to paint it. We're not going to okay. cement render it. The surface you saw when you went and looked at it, which is essentially lots of ribs, uh, horizontal yes. ribs, that will be the surface. There's a small amount of an oxide that's been put in the actual mixture, mm. in the contour crete, and... In that oxide, that'll give it just a slight colour, not a drastic colour. It's kind of a, a slight grey colour. Okay. And the idea of that is that we don't need to paint it, we don't need to cement render it. 
Low maintenance. That's the whole yeah, idea of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the internal and external wall that's been done in the same process. Right. So it's not yes. like a normal building you have a brick outside and then you'd have to have some type of panelling on the yes. inside. Yes. This is all done. So again, oh, low maintenance going yeah. forward. Well, it's something that's going to last for 50 or 60 years. What a fabulous idea. Yeah, I'm really impressed with it. And yeah, well done to our councillors for being bold and courageous enough to go yeah. forward with this because when you do something new, you're always going to be criticised. But I think. The bottom line that we've got here is, I think, a really great outcome. Mm. And in my mayoral memo this week, I did quote the great Jack Gibson, of course, the coach of the Australian Rugby League team of the century. And his most famous quote was when he said that the former Cronulla and Australian player, Andrew Eddinghausen, was so quick that he could switch off the bedroom light and be under the covers before the room was dark, of course, defying all laws of physics. But that wasn't my favourite quote from Jack Gibson, my favourite one was when he said, if you're standing still, you're going backwards fast. Yes. So in right. other words, yes. you've got to keep innovating. You've got to keep going forward. You've got to keep getting better at what you do. Yes. If you don't, you're going backwards. And I think in this example, we're really showing that council uh-huh. is going forward and innovating. Well done to everyone involved. Matt, we talked about this in last week's uh, podcast there in regards to the citizenship ceremony. Now, that was uh, held during the week. Um, Great turn up. 38 people from 15 countries. How Mm. exciting. So if you've got a couple of little stories to share and how would the whole thing go? Well, it went really well and I do really enjoy the citizenship ceremonies. And I did say, obviously, invite people along if you can make it along there. And we did have a pretty big crowd. But again, with 38 people, they often bring along their various people. Relatives, etc. Yeah, everyone, which is great. That's exactly what we want to see. But I did talk to to one gentleman from Nigeria, mm-hmm. and he had a bit of a, a story to tell about how he arrived. And I won't go into detail around mm-hmm. that, but he was actually really fascinated about the council process. And he wanted to know more about the democracy okay. of that. And he actually was quite surprised to learn that councillors are part-time and not paid very much, $25,000 mm-hmm. or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Because he said, haven't you got 10 councillors? And I said, yeah, we do. And on the day, we had four councillors that were there at the ceremony, which was great. It's mm. in the middle of the day. People yep. are going to get away from work, etc. And he said, well, where were the rest of the councillors? And I said, well, they were at work. Mm. And he was a bit confused by that. He said, well, isn't... Aren't they isn't, full-time professionals? That's right. Job? Isn't this yeah. their work? And I said, yeah. no, and explained that the various occupations that various councillors had. And he was fascinated by this. Oh, he said, that's a bit disappointing. He said, I, I thought they were all full-time. Mm. So he was just intrigued by a different level of democracy right, right. And, and the interaction with the community. So that was fascinating. So there was another couple there and it was quite interesting because they had two of their daughters there and their two daughters have been in Australia for some time. Mm. I said, what brought you here? And they said, well, our children moved over here and they both become citizens previously. One actually became a citizen when she lived in Narromine. Mm. Another one became a citizen a few years ago in Dubbo. And then the parents. So it was the case of the opposite of what normally happens. The kids moved to Australia. Oh, really? And then the parents said, well, yeah, right. we don't see our kids much anymore. Yeah, we'll right. move to Australia as well. I'm assuming they must be older kids. We're not talking about four and five-year-olds here. Uh, no, correct. They didn't <laughs> send their four or five-year-old kid. My apologies. I, I should their, their, their two daughters were probably in their late 20s, maybe yes. early 30s, yes. they had kids of their own. The parents, now grandparents, wanted yes. to see their, their children and grandkids. So it was almost the reverse of what you expect to see. But mm. again, it was a nice story to say, well, the parents wanted to catch up with the kids yeah. more. So they've moved out. Yeah. They obviously moved out some years ago. Yep. And now they went, well, we love the place so much. We might as well stay here oh, and, and stay yes. and now become citizens. So again, we had people from the UK. We had people from New Zealand, from the Philippines, from Solomon Islands, the Netherlands, Pakistan, wow. Sri Lanka. 
I normally try and make a bit of a joke about the cricket, about people wanting to come. It's just some Indian people in the audience yep. come to somewhere yep. that can win the World Test Championship. But it was just after Australia had lost the last test to England. <laughs> Still a little bit deflated so on that I, one. Don't want to sort of talk too much about the war. <laughs> no, that's right. So I couldn't make too many jokes about that. But I did actually say to them, unofficially, mm. that I had one last test before they became citizens. And so people are a bit confused by that. As you can imagine now, I don't have that power. Once <laughs> they get to this stage, they become citizens. So it's really just the formalities that yeah, I go through. Yeah. But I, I kind of joked and say, well, I've got one last test before. We went through all the ceremony. They've sworn their allegiance and all the rest yep. has been done. And then I say, you've got to be picturing yourself at a sporting match. And you're in the crowd and it's here in Australia and a team, whatever team, Sport you follow, whether it be soccer or whether it be cricket, whatever, it doesn't matter. But we're playing your country of birth. I've got to feel so, like it's a bit of a Leighton Hewitt call. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> and so I say, you can imagine, you're in the crowd, you've got your new adopted country, but you've got torn allegiances, yes, yes. and then someone in the crowd, I want to make sure we get the right response, someone in the crowd yells out, Aussie, 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 and oi, I want oi, you to respond, oi. that's right, and they all in full voice come out with oil. Oh, they knew it, did they? So that's it, you're now you're full blooded Australian. Australian. Well right. done. <laughs> come on. Uh, and again, it's, it's a fine line that I try and strike in a citizenship ceremony, it's a very formal, very mm. serious process. This is saying that I'm adopting Australia as mm. my country. That's a big thing to do. Yeah. So I want to make it very formal and very serious, but also I want to make sure that the laid-back, casual attitude that we've got, yes. the laconic tone, if yes. you like, that we've got in Australia comes through in that as well. So it's beautiful. I do take the serious things very seriously, but of course something like that, I want to just put a bit of light-hearted yeah. process in there as well. So seems to be received well. And again, we'll have more of these coming I was up. I say, we said there last week, the fact we're increasing these, aren't we? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we are going to increase. We're going to have more a year just to fit wow. all the people in that want to become. And I still want to make it personal. Mm. Of the 38, I did not get to talk to all 38 mm. at the end of it. I tried to talk mm. as many as I could, but time is limiting. Obviously, they've got to get mm. back to their workplace and I've got other appointments. So I, I like to keep them fairly small yes. to try and keep that personal approach. Anyway... Thank you for coming to Australia. Thank yeah. you for coming to Dubbo. We welcome you, and I think Dubbo really does welcome people from around the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Welcome to all of our new citizens. How about I know that uh, Council's been working really hard in regards to uh, creating this net zero framework, going carbon neutral as well. So is, is there a difference between going carbon neutral and a net zero framework? Is it's I, I thought, also thought they were the same. I thought they were the same. Yes. And one of the things that is a nice thing that you get out of being on council is you learn so much about so many different areas. Mm. If someone said to me that they've got a business that's net zero and someone else said to me they've got a business that's carbon neutral, mm. I would think that they were pretty much mm. the same. Mm. One of the things that I learned from consultants we've got working on this for us, so we're working towards our net zero framework. Mm. And one of the important things, I'll come back to the consultants in a second, but one of the important things in what, I think people should be doing, is not just saying here is our target at the end of it all, but what are the steps to get towards that target. Mm. And I did attend a function one day when I heard some federal politicians saying, well, we've got some targets for 2050, so let's not worry about it for the moment. We'll just worry about it in 2049 and then see how can we achieve our targets. Mm. But, of course, you don't want to have a target of making it to the Olympics and say the day before the selection trials I'll start training. I'll start training, you yeah. Know. yeah. So yes. I think you've got to be taking the steps yeah. now yep. and there's a long way to go and a lot of steps to take. Yeah. So that's exactly what council will be doing. We'll be taking through a framework to council for councillors to resolve. Mm. And that framework will have targets, but also will have steps along the way. And I think we've got some pretty good steps in mm. place at the moment. But one of the things that was important that I learned from the consultants was that some 
organisations do say net zero, meaning mm. carbon neutral, but the mm. way they do that is they don't really change many of their practices internally. They keep using incandescent bulbs or they keep buying mm. dirty power or they keep running petrol cars, whatever it might be, and then what they do is they'll go and buy some carbon offsets or they'll go and put some money in towards some project that offsets some carbon. And so they can say, we've worked out that we produce X number of tonnes mm. of CO2 and then we've got offsets over there and that's all done. Everything's mm. fine, so mm. we're now net zero. Yep. That's carbon neutral, yep. but it's not net zero. Yes. And in achieving net zero, what you should be doing, I learned, mm. is you should be saying, how do we reduce the amount of carbon we're using in all of our activities, plus we might need a bit of an offset to finalise the small part left that we just can't get away from. Right. And, and so, of course, yep. I like to see black and white. I'm a bit of a black and white yes, person. Yes. I like to see no ambiguity in yep. our figures. So I said, so what is an acceptable percentage of all the carbon that you're using, all the, the production that you have in, in yep. whatever business you might have, what's acceptable? Mm. And they didn't give me a black and white answer. Right. They said you normally expect to get maybe only 10 or 15% of what you're left producing offset as opposed to some companies who just buy all of their offsets. So the real challenge for council is how do we do yeah. All of this, what do we do? And are we on track in regards to, to establishing this and to getting to this point? Well, we don't have a framework yet, and that will so, come ours, through. Okay, so this is the whole point of the framework, is this to is establish to, one. Correct, okay, to yep. get there. And, yep. and again, the other part that I find interesting is we often talk in the carbon reduction mm. land, mm. we often talk about a certain percentage lower than what it was as another random point in time. Mm. So we're using 2022 as our starting point. And I said, well, hold on. We'd probably already taken some steps mm. by 2022. Yep. Why that year you see other state or national, even international groups that might go back to 1990 or yep. 2006. And so thus that's what they'll say. We've dropped our, our carbon emissions by 60%. Compared to? to 1990. That's right. Yes. And so why don't we all have the same time yeah, frame yeah. was kind of my first question. Well, if everyone else uses 1990 or mm. 2000 or 2006, why don't we use the same? But we didn't actually do a collation of mm. our carbon emissions at that point in time. So it's a lot of work to okay. go back and calculate yep. what you might have been doing at that yep. point in time. If you do it at a point in time where you know, so 2022, we yep. said, okay, well, let's look at our carbon emissions now because we want to reduce it. But before you can reduce it, you need to know what you're doing now. Before mm. you can change behaviour, you need to measure what you're mm. doing. So mm. that was where we said 2022, okay, this is a decision from yeah. last year. Let's count it now and then look at reductions from so that th point in time. So this all fall in line with things like the Paris Agreement? Is that the sort of stuff? Or Well, ultimately, if you have every council and every state and then the nation all falls in behind that, yeah. that's where you're going to get the change coming from. So you can meet some of those international so agreements. So are there federal expectations on, on local council to have to meet certain standards with this to, to fall in line with the Paris Agreement? Not at this stage. And okay. it may happen, but at this stage it really is about councils doing what they think is right and doing what they should do. And we did look at some other councils and some of their frameworks in as part of this discussion, and it's fair to say it's all over the shop. Yeah, right. And even just that baseline year, as I talked about, 2022, yep. other councils had a whole range of different baseline years. Even the targets, even we'll hit a certain target by this year, but no steps along the line. Yeah. So all these different it's variations. It's isn't it? Really? It is a bit, yeah. yeah it would be yeah. nice to see some definitive framework set up by the federal government to say, here's what everyone should be yeah, aiming yeah. towards, not just a final solution. Because I was actually steps. under the expectation, the fact that we're all part of this together. But obviously what you're saying is not really. 
Well, I think we are all part of it together. And but, that's but the, I, I mean, like achieving a certain outcome. You know, yeah. I mean, like guidelines given from federal government to local to state to say, look, for us as a country, as a nation, to actually to achieve what we've been told and what we've said we'll achieve, we've all got to be doing this together. But it doesn't necessarily seem as though there's a certain set of guidelines to achieve that. No. People are obviously trying, but there's no one sort of really overseeing whether or not this is really happening. No, no, you're spot on with that part. But also I think even the guidelines, there's general guidelines about some targets, but what are the steps along the line? No, I don't think there's any uniformity across mm. that at all. It's up to every individual business, every individual yes. person, every yes. individual council to take some steps that they think are sensible. And I yeah. think we have taken some steps in the past. Even many years ago, we introduced a scheme at council, this is going back to Dubbo City Council, yeah. that really encouraged our residents to have solar panels on their rooftops and we actually had some incentives put in place, some by council, some by a local energy provider. And we did very well to the point where we became the number one rooftop solar mm. connector per capita across yeah. the nation. So fantastic. Yeah. Well done from a, a Dubbo perspective overall. But we buy our small sites. We've talked about it before. Yeah. 100% of our power for our small sites comes from renewables. Our large sites, not yet. We're, we're going for a certain percentage yeah. already. And then we're stepping down that path because it was very expensive. We're stepping along that path by 2029. All of our large sites will be 100% renewable power. But it's also about just your usage. Have you replaced your lights on mm. all your streets mm. with LEDs. Not yet, but we're most of the way there. We've still got a little way to go. Again, that's expensive, but that reduces how much carbon we need mm. in the first place, how much power we need in the first place. So is this all part of the framework establishment to, to determine what are the areas we can focus on to uh, to drop our emissions? That's exactly it, to look at, it's, it's a twofold process. Reduce the amount of power we need, reduce the emissions that we're going to create in the first place, yep. and then ultimately, how do we offset those last few emissions? Now, the big scary part, and I actually said to the consultants, is there some way we can almost split council into mm. two parts? Because mm. we've got a major problem with our tip, with our rubbish and the methane. Well, maybe you're saying this This is a big part of the, the, the contributing factor towards it, Correct. isn't it? Correct. So yeah. 62% of all the carbon emissions that we generate, or the CO2 equivalent, yeah. comes from our tip. If we didn't have the tip, yep. it'd be much easier for us to get to carbon neutrality and then mm. to net zero. But with the tip, wow, that's a big problem mm. we've got to try and face mm. and address. So I actually said, can we just split off the tip and so we can talk about council operations in general yep. and then the tip? And then we said, no, sorry. All part is one. That's right. The tip is part of your council operation. So yeah. you really are taking on that on behalf of the whole community. But see, other councils, Sydney councils, for example, yep. they don't have waste. They don't have waste disposal. Yeah, they yeah. don't have sewerage. They don't have water treatment. So it's much mm. easier for them to retrieve is, carbon neutrality. Is there any moment where they sit and compare and say, look, well, Sydney Council will sit here and we've dropped our carbon emissions by X figure. And well, Dubbo, unfortunately, you haven't really sort of come to the party as much as us and ha, ha, ha. But you're comparing oranges and apples. You are, really. That's exactly right. So I haven't heard that from Sydney councils, but sometimes at yeah. conferences, sometimes you get the feeling that some Sydney councils look down their nose at mm. regional councils because we're doing something different, but they don't have all of these various things that yeah. they've got to take into yeah. account. So again, in a Sydney council, I would think it would be much easier to achieve definitely carbon neutrality and probably net zero than a regional area, but mm. that's what we've got. It's part of the challenge we face, isn't part it? part of the challenge. So yeah. we'll take on that challenge and we'll work towards it, but at least we're going through this process to get mm. something that we'll be comfortable with. Council haven't resolved it yet, but we will get to that point mm. and have that to focus on and then keep working towards that, which I think is a good process regardless, but it'll be interesting to see about the education of the community as well there because the lessons that we have and the steps that we take, the community can 
pick up on some of those as well and, and learn from some of those and adjust their behaviour. But it really is up to every individual how we can change all of our behaviour. So we've got some steps in there. We'll keep working towards those, but keep an eye out. It won't be that long before we'll have some sort of framework we can talk about. Yeah, very good. I noticed here, Matt, that uh, during the week uh, there was a briefing with uh, with Mark Spittle. Uh, now, Mark is, uh, well, pretty much I think Mark sort of heads up a lot of the the Western Area Health around here these days. Um, now, in regards, this is obviously in regards to the Spears Drive development uh, with the Alcohol and Drug Rehab Centre over there, um, or the proposal for this. Now, this has obviously been a, an ongoing controversy, to be honest. There's, there's been lots and lots of discussion. We've had plenty of discussion on our podcast about this. Um, during the week, you had this, uh, this briefing from Mark. So what did Mark have to say? Well, it's a tricky one. The And I've had a conversation with Mark Freud, a detailed phone conversation, and I did say to him, so we could speak frankly, I'll keep the content of the conversation confidential. Sure. And the discussion we had with counsellors, I would say there was an implied confidentiality in amongst that discussion as well. But I'm happy to talk about things in a general nature, mm. not necessarily picking out anything in particular mm. that occurred at that particular meeting, that particular conversation. I think the important part with this one is that there's no doubt about it that council as our staff and councillors, are continuing on the thought process and the conversations around the alcohol and other drugs facility. Mm. We have a formal resolution of council that says we oppose the Spears Drive location. And we've seen or we've had some discussions around a letter from the minister, a phone conversation I've had with the minister around what can we do, how can we progress this, this is a facility that everyone agrees we need, yep. but again, council have said we don't agree with the location, but we still want it to be built as mm. soon as possible. Mm. So I won't go into details about the conversation we had with that meeting, but what I will say is looking at things from an external perspective, my opinion from what I've seen from the letter from the CEO, sorry, the letter from the minister and from radio interviews that I've heard and from general commentary, I actually think the facility is going to go to Spears Drive. Okay. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with that. Yep. Formally, I disagree with that. Yep. But I think from everything that we've seen and read, and if I tell you why, some specific reasons why, there's been commentary from Western New South Wales Local Health District and from the Minister that they want this to happen as soon as possible. They're impatient for it to happen. The facility is needed in the community. People mm. are literally dying mm. in our community because we don't have these facilities available. So they're very keen to make it happen. They've already done their due diligence on the parcel of land. We know that in June this year, they paid $1.42 million to buy the parcel of land in Spears Drive for the use of this facility. Mm. So they're progressing to that point. They're comfortable that the services are there, that it meets all their criteria. So everyone from the health side, from the minister's office, seems quite comfortable with the actual parcel of land. They've then said to council, if you can find a parcel of land that we can get done within a quick time frame that doesn't delay the project significantly, that doesn't cost the project extra money because there's a finite budget there, mm. and we can get all that sorted more or less immediately, then we'll look at it. So we're talking about state government here, and and, and you're using words here like uh, you know uh, short-term, immediate, this sort of thing. State government doesn't normally work like that. Normally there is a process that's involved with, with anything that comes forward that's going to take months, if not years sometimes. So is that... What you're saying here to me, if I'm sitting back thinking, 
This sounds to me as a foregone conclusion, is, is that, again, this is me saying this, that it appears as though the state government has decided that Spears Drive will be the place to go ahead. They did, and this is again in the letter from the Minister, which I didn't make public but has been made public, in that letter it says things like, we've done an exhaustive analysis of various parcels of land across the LGA in conjunction with council staff working beside them doing our own analysis. Mm. We've already talked about the fact that there have been 16 parcels of land minimum that council staff have talked to Western Local Health District about the suitability. Out of all that exhaustive process, they chose Spears Drive. Now, again, I formally oppose that. Council formally opposes that. And it's on record. We've we've stated this on many occasions. But if they've gone through that process and they've chosen Spears Drive, the logic would say that they're comfortable with that location. Mm. They're comfortable with all the various variabilities, if you like, that lead to this being the right location. Now, they have said genuinely that if council can come up with a parcel of land that is far superior to that, and they'll look at that and they'll go through due diligence. But if you do all that, the delay to the project, which they've said we don't want to delay the project, says to me that, gee, it would have to be an outstanding parcel of land that would be much cheaper. Now, even if we gave them one of the parcels of land that's been discussed around North Bungle Gumby, Mm. even if we gave them one of those parcels of land, they haven't got services. They haven't got water. They haven't got sewerage. But that could be a couple of years away yet. It, It would take, we estimate it from our perspective, council, there's probably maybe a year and a half, maybe mm. a little bit less than a year and a half, mm. before all the processes we'd have to go through. Western Local Health District said that any parcel of land, they've got a due diligence process. That would maybe take six months to go through that mm. process. Mm. They've looked at North Bungagummi and they've said because it doesn't have the services that are required there, yep. there's some problems with that, which yep. would make it more expensive than their budget would allow. Yep. So ultimately, I think it's... I actually would use the word disingenuous. Mm. Maybe that's too strong a word. But I actually think if it is the case that the state government, remembering that this is a state government decision, Mm -hmm. not a council decision, they hold the decision-making power for where this will go. But if they've made their decision, if they think that Spears Drive is the location, what I would say to the state government is, please come out and tell the community. Absolutely. You're giving false hope to residents around Spears Drive that are unhappy. Council, again, in opposing that, yep. is trying to help those residents in Spears Drive, yep. but it feels like maybe we're giving false hope as well yep. because ultimately the decision will be made by the state government and it may well have already been made. If that's the case, take your well, medicine, come out and say that's the state. Absolutely. I think that's a good way of putting it because to me now, uh, well, based on what Mark just sort of said um, and what state government's uh, stating here as well, so... Time frame wise, like if they're saying to you, if, if you can come up with, not you personally, but council in general, if council could come up with a, another option that fits this criteria, uh, all, all well and good, we can look at that, uh, possibly. But where's the time frame on that? Like, because they're talking about wanting to have this as an immediate sense of a start. They want to get going on this. They've got the land, they've got the approvals all being set. It's all ready to rock and roll from their perspective. So now they're saying to you, well, if you can come up with another block of land somewhere for us, um, that's what we can look at it. But there's going to be a time frame, surely, for you to come back with them to say, here's another block alternative option. You've given them 16 options. They've all been rejected apart from the one. So, well, no, no. Spears Rob wasn't one of the one. I wasn't one. Sorry, no, that's that, right. That, that it was, was a whole that separate was their one. choice. That was it. So yeah. the whole separate option there again. So is, is there a time frame that council's meant to now come back with another option for them? Because, mm. you, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. they just seem to be dragging this out. No one seems to be standing here going, all right, guys, enough talk. Decision's been made. Let's get on with it. 
And that would be nice, a, a deadline or a timeline so that there can be a final decision and move forward. But no, there hasn't really been anything put in place. But I think, my understanding at least, is that they're continuing on with their development processes with Spears Drive as if it's going ahead. Mm. And then if something else comes out that's outstanding, we'll talk about it. But I, I kind of look at that and I say the 16 parcels we've brought forward, minimum, mm. and the other parcels that they've looked at, gee, someone's done a really bad job yeah. if there's an outstanding parcel of land in amongst all of that ah. that no one's thought of so far and suddenly yeah. now they've said, oh, we need an outstanding parcel of land. We go, well, actually, yeah. we've had this minute. one tucked away over here. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. didn't have a... I've been holding this back for you. That's yeah, right. That's and now that if you really ask for it, mm. we'll go and give you this outstanding parcel of land. Yeah. Yeah. We've given lots of options that we think were suitable. Again, we didn't even know the exact criteria at the beginning, yeah. but we've had that criteria spelled out to us in, in clearer detail now. But I just don't think there's that clear parcel of land. Now, one of the things that I would say, there are decisions that we make as councillors sometimes, as a council, that aren't popular. There are some people in a, in a community, no matter what decision you make, some people say it's a great decision, some people say it's a terrible decision. But as councillors, mm. we say, that's our decision, we resolve this way, we'll move forward with all the information we had available to, with all the best intentions, mm. we've made this decision and we're moving forward, and we understand some people aren't happy with that. Yeah. I'd almost say the same thing to the minister. A absolutely. There's a, decision, a there's a decision that's been made. If it's been made, then you're going to sometimes have some people that are unhappy with the decision. Yeah. If you've made the decision, don't keep trying to blame council. Yeah. Don't keep trying to hide and say, we'll make that decision at some stage in the future. We'll look at other parcels. If you've made the decision, I'd say, come out and say, We've made the decision. We yep. understand some people are unhappy with that decision. We're sorry about that. But this is the best thing for the community overall. Now, I might be being a little bit out of order even in saying that, A, to a minister, but mm. B, also, maybe they haven't made the decision. Mm. But I just feel like they have and everyone uh, else has been strung along. Well, look, I suppose use the analogy of either pull the Band-Aid off quickly or take it slowly. But I tell you, taking the Band-Aid off slowly right now is hurting a lot more. And you think, oh, is that all? Is it fit down now? Oh, yeah. is that all? Is no, it done that's, now? That's so, right. A little bit more pain still to come. Yeah, mm. that's right. And I think in this scenario, let's and, and the blame game for council is just ridiculous. I just find that whole process yep. of trying to blame council for a state government decision. The yep. state government overrules us. They yeah, can absolutely. do whatever they want with a parcel of land. I think mm. that's just becoming a bit of a joke. I think most people in the in the community, the, the conversations I'm having with people, yeah. they're at the point where they're just going, can't the state government put it wherever they want? Yeah, they can. Why are they blaming council? That's well, right. it's a good question. A good question. I'm not, not quite sure why. Mm. I know, Matt, um, at the standing committee in the uh, committee meetings during the week and uh, one of the decisions looks like it's been made here is the fact that the local government, New South Wales uh, annual conference is coming up and it uh, looks like the decision's been made that quite a lot of the councils are going to go along to the conference. So um, I know that there's always debate in community in regards to when uh, people head off on conferences and, you know, the old, it's, it's a junket, that type idea. And so I think we're looking here at maybe eight or nine councillors heading along to the the annual conference. So this is an annual conference. It's the big one. Um, what's the, the rationale and the decision behind uh, taking so many councillors with you to the, the local government New South Wales annual conference? So the LGNSW board or committee, if you like, organisation is a better word, is our peak body. For councils yep. across the state, it's our peak body. I don't know if all 128 councils are members, but I would say majority, if not all of those 128 councils are. Mm. And there is an annual conference. Now, I'd be quite happy, and I'd be quite happy to, to stand there in the public and defend the decision to have all 10 councillors go along. 
normally you can't get a lot of councillors because councillors have got their mm. normal day job, their normal yeah. occupation. Yeah. They run businesses and employees of operations, yes. All of that, and they've got to take annual leave to even go mm. to the conference. The conference this year is in Sydney, and it goes from the 12th of November to the 14th of November, mm-hmm. and we've got to make a decision about the councillors that go along, the voting delegates that go along, and we're also got to make decisions about how many councillors go along. Now, every conference that I've been involved with over all the years in council, I always say, as many councillors as can go, should go. Now, from a public perspective, again, you use the word junket, it's a mm, nice, easy mm. word to throw That's around right, out there. Easy. And it's it's interesting, I, I don't see them as a junket. Mm. You go along, the conference sessions start reasonable time, 8.30, 9 o'clock, that sort of time, not ridiculously early, but yeah. there'll often be a breakfast, yep. there'll be a presenter at a breakfast, so often you'll end up starting about 7am. Okay. You go along to a breakfast, you'll hear some guest speaker, and you'll sit at a table with random people from other councils. Oh, hi, mm. my name's Matthew, mm. I'm from Double Regional Council, where are you from? Oh, mm. I'm, I'm Billy Bloggs from this council, oh, that's mm. interesting. And and the almost the opening line... The networking begins. The networking begins, yes. and the opening line often is... What are your big issues at the moment? Yes. What What are your problems? What What successes have you had recently? What are your victories that you can tell me about? Because you just find out different things about different yep. council areas. Yep. So you'll start at a breakfast. You'll then go to the conference sessions. You'll sit in the conference sessions. You'll watch some presenters. Mm. You'll hear some panels, that typical type of thing. Mm. You'll have morning tea. Hi, I'm Matthew. You'll have your lunchtime. Hi, I'm Matthew. Yep. And then there's also some debate that occurs at the conference, which I found very unusual, very mm. strange the first time I went to a local government conference. No conference that I ever seen where this occurred. It's like a big council meeting with what, say, around about six, seven hundred people there, or something. Something like that. Yes. And you'll you'll have debate. Motions can be submitted, just like councils can put in a notice of motion. Yeah, yeah. Councils can submit notices of motion to the local government New South Wales board, okay, right. and then they're brought forward to be debated across. Wow. The whole area. And you yeah. can imagine the president, Daria Turley, is the president at the moment. Yeah. She has to run it like a mass around a council <laughs> meeting. That's a job she can have, I tell you. <laughs> that's, that's a oh fun boy. job there. And it's usually very well behaved and yes. people are putting their views forward, different points of view, etc. And the idea of that is that those notices of motion are to give the board direction mm. to take forward policies of local government New South Wales. Mm. So it's things that we agree with across the board, that then they can talk to state government and say, well, at our conference, we said, please lobby this, this and this, Mm. please push this particular issue, whatever it might be. Mm. Now, there's a cost to all of this, obviously. There's a cost to attend the conference, there's a cost for accommodation, for transport, etc. What's the actual costing, sort of, from the point of view of council? So we typically, if we're based on last year's figures, the people that went last year, the councillors that went, approximately $2,783 per councillor that went and attended. And so some people say, well, that's a lot of money, which it is. $2,800, round numbers, that's a lot of money to go along to attend a conference. But when you put it in perspective, councillors are managing a budget, approximately $250 million budget. That's Mm. a fair-sized budget. We've got an asset base, Dubbo Regional Council, of somewhere in the vicinity of $3 billion. Now, we pay our councillors $25,000, so not a lot of money to pay. Mm. I always, in in my business life, in my personal life, in in my kids, I'm a huge fan of ongoing education. I think there's so much you can learn, there's so much to know out there, and things are constantly changing. So I believe having councillors go along to a conference and learn and network, get ideas, share ideas. I guarantee that we'll have some councillors at the next conference saying, hey, this 3D printing, how well did that work? Now, that doesn't give an advantage to Dubbo, but it certainly gives an advantage to another council. But we get that same information sharing back. Hey, I heard you're trying 
this. How's that going for you? Oh, you're doing your swimming pool in this particular way. Mm. Is that cheaper for you? How's that working? So it's Mm. all of these things. And some of the people that you meet that you gain as contacts, you might forget about that contact until six months later something comes up. Oh, that's right. I remember talking to Billy Bloggs from Council X. I'm going to give him a call. And councillors love to share that information around. So Plus, I'd imagine too, based on the costing, that, that council would have, uh, I'll refer to it as like an in-servicing budget, that, that there would be money set aside within the budget for uh, for education of, of staff. That would be a, a normal sort of scenario within any budget. Is that right? Exactly right. So there is a budget that we have for councillors for ongoing education. And if councillors, if any councillor finds a particular conference that they might think might be relevant for them, for some issue we're facing at the moment, yep. and they say to the CEO, can I attend this conference? As long as he feels like it is adding to the education of that particular councillor, then he would approve that. So there's a CEO, is there a committee with the CEO that approves uh, who goes off on uh, what educational uh, functions and conferences or or it's just him in general? If it was within budget, it would be within the CEO. If it was something that then went, if one councillor was going to a a council conference that they found randomly every month, then it would hit the budget. So the budget covers all councillors and individual councillors as well, then the CEO would say, hold on, that's enough. You've been to a few, you've hit your budget. And if they really wanted to go to it, then then you'd go to a council resolution to approve some additional expenditure outside that budget. This goes to council, and this was a recommendation through the committees on Thursday night, but this will then go to council two weeks after that for final resolution for a couple of reasons. One, you have to have delegates that are voting delegates at the conference. So mm. every second year, there's a vote for various things that happened around election of, of the board members and then also the voting on the things that come up, the motions that come up. Yep. So we have to nominate three councillors as the voting delegates. So that's a, a standard process for each one. And then and on top of that, any other mm. councillors that want to go along. Mm. And so, again, that goes to council. But it's also good to go to council from a public perspective, yep. we like to get in early. You get as many conferences, you get early bird registration fees. Yep. So that closes off at the 20th of September. So again, it would make sense to resolve this sooner rather than later mm. and mm. let some of the councillors that want to go tell their employer that Absolutely. we're going yeah, to go right. on a certain date. Some councils I've seen, and I've talked to other councillors who are very strict on them, but no, we only allow two people to go along to that conference. And I really feel like that's saying we don't value mm. your education as a councillor. We don't value what you can get out of these conferences. We're going to limit that from a cost-saving perspective, but really we are talking about well, small dollars. Well, you're talking about here, this other thing in regards, let's pick up on this one, in a positive way, there's, we've got a, a number of new councillors that have never uh, been on council before. So this is, I suggest, an opportunity for them to go along uh, to, to get some education in regards to, uh, I should say, there's a lot of guest speakers there that go to these annual conferences, to do the networking. So for them, this is a great opportunity for them to uh, to become more educated in what the role is of being a councillor. And, and as you say, secondly, these people hold very important positions in our community. You want them best educated in, in the best possible way to be able to make the best informed decisions. So if they're seeing uh, at these conferences any little bits of information to help pick them up and to further educate them to become better counsellors, well, for $2,500, that's a pretty small investment to, to create a better, better decision-making processes. And I think you use the magic word there, you use the word investment, mm. and I think you're spot on there, the investment in our people. Now, if our staff member wanted to go along and attend a conference, and again, we don't approve that. That's done at the various management levels in within council. But again, you'd feel if you're a staff member and you're 
manager said, no, 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 you can't go and learn any more about your job. You can't be having counsel, investing in your mm. future and investing in mm. you doing your job better. Surely that employee would say, well, this isn't a great place to work. And it's the same with counselors. You yeah. want someone, and in this case, the community saying, counselors, we want you to invest mm. in your education. If you can make better decisions, that should benefit all of us. And surely you can save $2,800 in what you do in terms of better decision-making process. Yep. Keep in mind, and you're spot on about new councillors, some of the councillors have already attended conferences previously. So obviously this is an annual conference. So some some of the new councillors, but there are some councillors who haven't yep. attended a conference yet. And some of them who did put their hand up and say they want to be part of the conference this year made the point that they haven't been to one before mm. and they've heard that it's a good learning experience. So let's see if it's a good learning experience. Well, I think the other thing is there too, like in most professional industries, there's an accreditation process uh, that, that you have, that you have to, you know, continue to become more educated in your profession every year. Now, from the point of view of a counsellor, do we have any sort of accreditation process for, uh, for counsellors? It would be great to have some sort of accreditation. They've now introduced the fact that you've got to do certain training courses. Mm -hmm. But it does, so when you start, on council, there's certain training courses that need to be undertaken. Yep. It doesn't mean you've got to pass a test. It doesn't mean you've got any accreditation. I'd love to see some sort of little basic course that you had to pass an exam at the end, a bit like the Australian Institute of Company Directors course. I mm. did that mm. maybe 12 or 13 years ago. Yes. And I found that really beneficial. There was a, a training course. It was a, a week-long course you went through and attended that. And then at the end of all of that, yep. you had an assignment to do and then an exam to do. Yep. So it, it actually said... Yes, you've attended the course, but you also have some understanding of it. At the end of it all, I'd love some sort of course like that, that maybe you're elected as a counsellor. Mm. And within the first, call it 12 months, you've got to do a certain course and pass that course to be accredited, to mm. be saying that at least you've got the basic knowledge to go forward. Because at the moment, you can get elected with no skills. Yes. You can, well, no skills is probably too harsh. You can get elected without having any formal accreditation. Yep. And yep. then you can continue to be a counsellor as long as you turn up to some of those meetings at the beginning, some of those mm. training courses, but you could sit there and twiddle your thumbs and, mm. and not really pay much attention, not learn much out of that. So mm. education, I think, is vital. I think we've got a group of counsellors now that are very keen on making sure they're doing things better, making sure they're improving what they're doing. And the fact that we might have eight or nine counsellors at this conference, I actually think that's a really positive sign that Absolutely. they're prepared to commit and invest in the future for Dubbo. Well, short of an accreditation, this is a better way of uh, the current way of doing things to allow counsellors to get their education up in these spaces. Yeah, spot on. Mm. Our uh, Matt uh, Delroy Parklands uh, got a mention there during the week. Um, Talk us through this one, because I'm not really quite sure. Uh, first of all, where is Delroy Parklands? And there seems a little bit of controversy being raised in regards to this. So uh, what's actually happened here? Well, I'm confused. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> first of all, and, where is Delroy Parklands? Uh, over on Jorah Road. You may remember many years ago, there was a site over in Jorah Road that the Catholic Diocese of Bathurst owned, and they were going to put a school there, a new Catholic school there, but in the end, they decided fairly recently, I think, that they decided not to go ahead. So this is the block of land that the, the Catholic, uh, the Dyson here in Bathurst, the Bathurst Dyson, decided to purchase there for potentially a primary school to be developed there, I think, might, or high school, actually, I think, might have been a part of the initial idea. I think it might have been like a middle school from three to year 10 or something. But I think all that's been canned at this point in time. Correct. And so my understanding is that and I'm not actually sure what it was. I thought it might have been a high school, but you might be right. It might have been that middle school sort of environment. But the idea was, obviously, that 
there'd be a school go there. Now, way back in 2009, council went into an agreement or entered mm. an agreement with the Catholic Diocese of Bathurst, and they said, the, the diocese said, we'll give you this site where a playground, a future playground will be built. And we've got this other bit of land over here that we're going to build a school on at some mm. point in the future. Mm. All we want, by giving you that land for free, so here's a donation of land, all we want is that when that parkland area is built and it's all finished and completed, we would like, as the school, to be able to utilise that during school hours, basically have first okay. rights of that utilisation. So, for example, if there was a, a large oval there and the school there wanted to run their cross-country carnival, then, okay, that's booked out and the school's got that mm. first. Mm. In 2009, council obviously thought, well, that's a reasonable agreement. We get land for free. We yep. can develop that at some stage. And it's there for the community, but the school, in school hours, they want to do something with it. Mm. That makes sense. So that was all fine. It's about 4.69 hectares. So mm. it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable size. Yeah, especially amongst all that residential area over there. Yeah, exactly right. Now, as it turns out, as you said... The um, Catholic Diocese of Bathurst said, we're not going to go ahead with that school. Mm. Uh, we're going to basically sell off the, the land there, do some development there. Oh, well, there's still the parkland there, so council still got that. Mm. So, I mean, that's the background to it. It was being described as controversial, which I don't quite understand why it's controversial. Mm. It's a pass of land. Let's develop uh, an area there. And so we've now got plans that have gone through our committee meetings to show what the recreational precinct will look like. So there's a couple of larger oval-type parts of it there. So right. there might be, for example, a sporting oval. It might be soccer, footy, whatever on there. But basically, it's that sort of size if you get that sort of environment there. Yep. Uh, then you've got some courts on there. Some multi-use courts might be used for things like netball, that right. type of thing. Uh, you've got a skate park on there, outdoor gym. So it's got a range of different activities that can be undertaken there. So the people don't want this to be developed there or...? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm and, not quite sure. And the only place I've seen the word controversy used was in a headline in the local newspaper. Right, okay. So I, I don't really know exactly. Sounds like the headline, not having a headline. Mm, might know. have been clickbait if I was being mm. harsh on it. But it, it all looks pretty reasonable to me. Now, that's going through our committees. You fully understand the process. Mm. That will now go in two weeks' time to our council meeting to be formally resolved, and the resolution will be to put this on public display. Okay. And that's the idea, is it goes on public display. So it's basically like like a plan for that area. A plan for that area. And it, it is a master plan, a mm. small master plan will be it, but mm -hmm. a master plan, and it's going to have stages. So, for example, stage one might be the amenities and the pedestrian footbridge and a car park and a playground area. Stage two might be some playing fields with lighting, additional car parks. Stage three, those multi-court and the skate park, those type of things. So you've got four different stages there because, mm. again, it costs money to develop all this and that'll be developed over time. But really the first instance is once it goes through and it's formally resolved at council, out on public display, have a look at it, yeah. tell us what you think of it, tell us in general mm. the feedback for that area there there's going to be some form of recreational precinct there. What it looks like really comes down to the community, the feedback they give us, and then go forward. And I think with that exploding population over yeah. West Dubbo, yeah. to me, if I lived over in that area there, I'd say, well, this is fantastic, yeah. somewhere for the kids to Absolutely. play. and Some more parkland area. Somewhere for me to go and you know, break my arm in the skate park or something. <laughs> Fluoride. It's uh, been again something that we've uh, discussed at, uh, at length over the course of time. Um, now I'm not going to go back over what we've already talked about. Um, I'm sort of like to think about now where are we up to in regards to getting fluoride back in our water? Has the new treatment centre, are, are we built, are we on track? 
No. No, oh, we're not. Okay, that's disappointing to hear. What's, what's happened now? So, look, I, I do apologise to the community. We had talked about it previously that the fluoride... Okay, let's go back very quickly. January 2019, as we know now, yep. fluoride stopped being put into our water. There was a failure in our fluoride dosing system. Mm. For whatever reason, council at the time decided not to tell anyone. Yes. And not to fix it. Mm. So... Problem has been identified. I've seen reports where the problem's been identified by our staff, mm. staff that are still there today. They've put it in reports. They've sent it through to their superiors, and then nothing happened with it. Mm. We discovered this by chance. I think I've mentioned it before mm, that have, it, it was right. really just a, a chance discussion that I had with someone, or actually my wife had with someone that led to some investigation. And in the middle of last year, it was identified, even though... I know when I brought it up with the CO, it was like my first reaction was, well, of course, fluoride's in the water. Mm. And the CO's first reaction was, of course, fluoride's in the water. Mm. Further investigation, we found out it wasn't. So the first thing we did was we engaged New South Wales Public Works and said, we found out we've got a failure with our dosing system. Can you have a look at it, please, and see how we can fix that problem? And more than that, we need to tell the community. Mm. The community deserves to know that there's no fluoride in the water. Mm. And that's a breach of the act of the Fluoridation of Public Water Act 1957, not telling the community, or, or mm. sorry, not putting fluoride in the water when the community expects fluoride to be put in the water. And they're not even telling them. Is a breach of the act. Man. So bad, bad, and bad on all sorts of levels. Absolutely. We had New South Wales Public Works have a look at it, and they said, well, actually, this was all built back in 2006. Mm. We've progressed since then, and we've got a better way to add fluoride to the water now rather than use a liquid version of it. We can use pellet version, a solid form, and there's a different dosing system, et cetera, et cetera. More economical to run, better for our staff to manage. So thus the, the need for the new treatment facility to set it up. R that's correct. Rather than just repair what was already yep. there, let's build a new one. Said, okay, that's great. Let's go and do that. Can you prepare the documentation? Because it went out to tender. Went out to tender because it's a, a large project. Yep. And we did say at the time that we thought it's a fair bit of time to actually get all this sorted out and fixed up. We think on all our information we had at the time, by the 30th of June, 2023, yep. This will be solved and you'll have fluoride mm. back in the water. And we made that estimation with all of the best information we had available yep. to us at the time. Yep. We started down that process, the planning of it, tender process, etc. And then we awarded the tender earlier this year, but we're already after 30 June 2023 mm. Mm. now right. as we speak. So now. obviously yes. we didn't meet that deadline, so I apologise to the community for that. We went through a tender process. We awarded the tender to an organisation called TWS evolution right and that tenor price 1.192 million dollars we still even after that process even normally council would award a tender and then we could get straight yeah, into yeah. it yep. we still had to go back and have discussions with public works and with the department of planning and environment the water group part so why was that why do we have to do that for mm, it's it's to do with basically the fact that we're dealing with health facilities, and it's not health facilities per se, but right. this can affect public health. But wasn't, wouldn't that all been established prior to all of this? Is that Yes, but once the final tender was approved by council, because yeah. we're the ones paying the money for it, yeah. the other departments wanted to make sure that they were happy with the process, happy with the winning tenderer. So even though we kind so of awarded the tender... So they had to sign off on that as well, did they? Yeah, it was, it was much more complicated than, yeah, yeah. than we thought. Yep. And, and is really... It, is, is that a standard process? They normally do that? Not really, because it doesn't involve health. Yeah. Because we're treating water for the public, that's when health wants to get, in, get involved. Now, Public Works will sometimes engage Public Works to help us with a tender process because they've got specialties. Yeah. But if it was building a new road or a new bridge, 
it's a much simpler process. Yeah. But again, the potential you have, if you treat water incorrectly and then pump that out to 40 or 50,000 residents, mm. you can have a fairly big health crisis mm. on your hands, which the health system just So they handle. like doing almost like a cross-check of, of the group who's going to be building it to make sure that these guys are the right guys for the, the project? Is that the type of They idea? were checking everything. Yeah, okay. And so I have no problem with that process. Some people have said that that's bureaucrats basically just making sure they've got a job. But I, I don't see it that way. Mm. I see that they're being very thorough. Mm. But in being very thorough, it took longer. Yeah, and yeah. so it's held things up. It, it's held things up. We've now got final approval from both Public Works and the Department of Planning and Environment. Is there anyone else we've got to wait for now? Or? No, we're pretty right now. Thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, so we've now been able to say Tilios Evolution, everything's right to go. Okay. Green light, full steam ahead. Now, can you give us a time frame? Well, just the design phase that they've got to go through now will take 12 weeks. Right. And the estimation they've given us is that this will be completed by the end of April 2024. Okay. okay. The disappointing part there is January 2019 yep. is when water stopped mm. having fluoride at it. Mm. It'll be April 2024 before our residents mm. will have fluoride in their water again. So that's over five years without fluoride. Mm. That means if you had a child, yep. say, in January 2019, yep. they'll be at school almost before they see fluoride in their water. Mm. Now, how bad is it? One of the things, one of the conversations I had was with New South Wales Health, mm. and it was an interesting conversation. I said, our staff did the right thing, and in the report that has to go to New South Wales Health every year, it's an annual report, yeah. it identified quite clearly in that report, I've read the report that went in 2019, that went in 2020, yeah. that identified absolutely that there was no fluoride in the water. New why South did, Wales Health... Well, why did New South Wales Health jump in at that point in time? Why didn't they say to council, what are you doing about this? Yeah, yeah. This is a failure in the system. What are you doing about this? Now, New South Wales Health said, we didn't see it as a big an issue as other health issues because it wasn't going to cause a health outbreak. Sure, it might cause some additional decay in the teeth of people down the track, but it wasn't a health crisis. If we had... Crypto in the water, when we had a boil water alert, if you remember, our turbidity yep. level went yes. above 0.5. Yes. That was something that New South Wales Health were all over because that could be spreading crypto throughout the But New South Wales Health have been jumping all over the fact who, who the, the, the groups won the tender. They're all over them to make sure this that they're the right tender group. Yet when the problem arose back in 2019, it wasn't really a problem. It didn't seem to be as big a problem. And I suppose, again, they wanted to check the tender process to make sure that water that was being treated was not going to cause a health crisis, a, an outbreak of some description. So I was a little bit disappointed with New South Wales Health that they didn't yep. take some action against council at the time. And again, with you. back in yes. 2019, I'm just Joe Blow resident. Yep. I was nothing... You knew nothing about it. So even New South Wales Health never released anything to anyone. No, that's right. And I suppose they had an expectation, to be fair to them, that council was probably going to fix it up because mm. you'd think that they would fix it up. But they didn't and obviously had no intention of fixing up and no intention of really telling anyone about it. Mm. So it's a complicated process. So again, all I can do is apologise to the community. I wasn't involved in January 2019. Mm. But again, on behalf of council, apologise to the community. One thing that is has been under my uh, time in, in council, though, has been the commitment to June this year, which we mm. didn't meet. Yeah. And so again, I apologise for that. April 2024 will be when it will be in there. And even that process... That means it's taken almost two years from the time that we found out about it wow. to get to the point where we've now got fluoride back mm -hmm. in the water. At least, again, from my perspective, my job is to tell the community what's happening. Yeah, I'm not always saying what well, I'm going to tell people people will love, but I'm presenting the facts and the information as raw as it can be. So yes. this is now, we know the date now, April 2024. 
that's where mm. we're, we're going Fingers towards. Fingers crossed we can uh, hit that date. Exactly. Ah, oh, this is a good one, Matt. Uh, we talked about this going back a few podcasts ago about our sister city relationship with Minakomo over there in Japan. And there's obviously coming up, there's a, uh, a delegate or group of delegates who are going to be heading across, kids and, and adults, across there to Minakomo um, from Dubbo, across over there. And it looks as though we've had around 34 applicants apply for what appears to be around about uh, 10 places. So how good's that? It is good and disappointing because obviously the 24 people are very disappointed. Yes, that's right. Ideally, Percentages aren't necessarily always in the best favour of this That's one. right. You'd love 10 outstanding applications yes. and you give it to those 10 and away they go. But this is now engaging with the student visitation process mm. that used to be in place. It's an annual process. We used to have students from Minakama come over each year and we'd have students from here go across each year. So that was a, a great process. Mm. Obviously, a little pandemic came along and threw a lot That's of spinners, yes, yes, a lot of work. up a lot of things, didn't That's it? That's right. right. And so we've now basically past that fear and so we've got students going again and they'll go the next school holiday so the september school holidays and again we asked for applications to come yeah. in and we were blown away with the amount of it's fantastic interest that was out yeah. there so yeah you're right 34 applications pretty tough job for the well, who's, committee who's on that committee right? well it's a, oh, i didn't sit on that one so thankfully <laughs> well done we, we you got that for, bullet i think well no it's, it's still a council decision we had to finally resolve the committee members but mm. in in general but I mean, not sitting on the committee you no. have to be the one to sort of say no to some poor little 14 to 15 year old or whatever that's right and they across. interview the student so it's a yes. really comprehensive process but and again even the chaperones we had lots of applications for oh, the chaperone position too? so yes. again they, they chose two chaperones there to go along with them but it's a really positive process. Mm. We'll have a, a function. So we'll go back a step. Well done to those 10, because obviously there's a lot of competition for places. Yes, yes. And again, sorry to those 24. So, so they, they've out. been announced already, the, the 10 kids? They, they oh, know. So the process already gone through. They know who they are. Okay. The, the final resolution of council really was just to, to, to note that part of it. But yep. they know who they are already. Yep. And again, I'm sure some disappointed kids. And they've got a limited time frame in terms mm. of when they can go. But some of those could apply next year. Oh, well done for putting your hand up, though. That's fantastic. And that is part Part of it, isn't it? Even Absolutely. putting your hand up is, is a part of that process. Even yeah. going through an interview process, all of it's right. scary. Yeah. And they'll go across. We'll have a, a little function before they go. And I normally talk to the kids at that function to emphasise to them that they are ambassadors. They're representing mm. the city. We've never had any problems with mm. behaviour from kids that go over. Obviously, the vetting process is, is very good. Yeah. But again, I just like to remind them that be proud of it. Be proud Absolutely. of the fact that you are Great an ambassador. too. Yeah. yeah. So they'll go over and I'm sure they'll come back. They normally come along to council and give us a report back to a council meeting or a committee meeting to just give us an update on how mm. it went. And you can just see how much excitement. And I've actually noticed before, I've seen kids before they go, and it's only a few months later we see them come back, but they seem to have grown a couple of years in maturity sometimes because mm. they've been out there representing their city. So mm. it's a really positive experience. So great to see. And again, we'll continue on that process. We'll have students that will come over here and, and keep going forward oh, with that. wonderful. Now, Matt, it's time for the Limerick of the Week. Now, I'm going to do something I've never done, and that is I'm going to actually give you a topic. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I really test your ability here because you're, you know, like you sit here every week and you present these wonderful limericks. But I'm going to give you a topic to focus on. And it's the opening topic that we had at the start of the, at the top of the podcast, which is, of course, the 3D printing. So, I'm going to see how clever you are. Well, I'm in luck. 
because I've written my limerick this week. Oh, you're kidding. About, well, it's the Nage topic. How could I write about anything else? So you give me, me trying to catch you that's out. right. You give me an easy one where, <laughs> where you pick something that was the obvious one for the week. Oh, goodness. So it, it was, there was no doubt about it. It was the focus for the week with national media. I end up going there not by design, but there were different things I had to do over on site each and every day throughout the week there yes. and talking to different people. So anyway, uh, enough chat. Now you've given me the challenge. <laughs> That's I can, right. I can pretend I'll just make it up here on the oh, spot, yes, but yes, I did You write. could have done that. I'd have been very, very impressed. That's right. So here goes. A toilet block sprang from the pad from a 3D printer. Not too bad. With concrete precision, it met the vision. A restroom miracle was had. Ah, well done. Look, despite the fact you actually made that up uh, prior to coming here today, I would love to have heard it without uh, the actual sort of time frame, but you did very, very well. Well done, mate. Very impressive. All right, folks, that just about wraps up again for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.